I'm Anna Wynn, and you're listening to Critical Literary Consumption, a podcast where I ask my guests, who are writers, poets, and scholars, about their reading and writing practices. Some questions I often ask are, what is the author responding to? What are possible tensions between author, text, and reader? Whose interpretations matter? What could be a miscitation? And how language is used and constructed? My guest today is Kelly Stevens-Kane, a poet, playwright, and oral historian. She is the author of the 2020 poetry collection, Hallelujah Science. Kane is a Kaveh Kahnem Fellow, an August Wilson Center Fellow, and a recipient of Advancing Black Arts and Pittsburgh Grants from the Pittsburgh Foundation. She studied at Voices of Our Nation Arts Foundation, Hurston Wright, and Kalalu. Her work has appeared in North American Review, Little Patuxent Review, Under a Warm Green Linden, Painted Bright Quarterly, African Voices, and Split This Rock. Kane has read her poetry and oral history and performed her one-woman show, Big George, nationally. For more information, visit www.kellystevenskane.com. All right, Kelly. First, I want to begin the conversation by asking you about the significance of your title. Why did you choose to name your poetry collection Hallelujah Science? Is poem 35 a callback to the title? And in that poem... You ask, who here knows about science? And then you proceed to tell the reader that you're not talking about beakers and Bunsen burners, but you are talking about hallelujah science. And then you offer kind of like an image of what you're trying to tell us, the reader, that this science could be seashell fossil science and look out the window collision science. What is this science exactly? And what does science mean to you? That's a great question. Thanks for having me, first of all. I'm excited to talk about this. Now, the funny thing is, you'd think that if you're talking to the author, <laughs> you'd get some kind of definitive <laughs> answer. <laughs> but no, um, I think, you know, because of the way these poems came about, which was kind of more of a subconscious process. A lot of the poems were actually written when I didn't feel well. If I had a fever, I would be writing. There's a lot in here about the body. So, you know, feeling in a menstrual, (laughs) you know, way Um, and feeling like experimenting with sleep and being partially awake. So a lot of the imagery and, and just writing came out of states like that, between mm-hmm. states. And in that sense, um, all of these phrases came out. And one of them was Hallelujah Science. And it was in that poem 35. You, you found <laughs> it. Initially, I had called this fever poems. And when I went to a workshop, because these were written before I had ever taken any kind of poetry classes. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to a workshop and my teacher, Willie Perdomo, had said, you know, this title doesn't do it justice. You've got to, you know, come up with something else. He said, there's lots of things right in the book that would be great titles. So I kind of made a list of those. And this one seemed to kind of encapsulate the essence of what was in there, kind of the physical and this kind of otherworldly quality in the same phrase. So I guess part of why I'm dancing around this is I think I have an urge to be careful about 
giving a definitive answer of why is this the way it is or what does this mean is I think mm-hmm. one of the reasons why poetry can have such what well, has the lowest readership of any <laughs> literary genre unfortunately and some of that I think can be attributed to the way it's taught in school kind mm-hmm. of like a puzzle that you should be able to figure out mm-hmm. and you should know the answer to and what's the author trying to say here's the metaphor yes it's this no it's not that and yeah, yeah. I just don't believe that. In fact, when I was in that workshop, the best part about the reaction to the work was that everyone was sitting on the edge of their seats, kind of like in agreement, engaged with this, but they were all saying completely unrelated, unmatching things <laughs> that didn't really connect at all. Yeah. Um, the connection was that they found something in it and they just knew that they knew what they were talking about. And Mm -hmm. so I thought that kind of iridescence maybe is seeing multiple truths at once, Mm -hmm. looking for truth, finding your truth, um, and that not necessarily being one thing. I have assigned your poems in my class. Um, I call my class citations as practice, and it's not so much about like the, the things that you see in the parentheses, but I'm asking my students to think about genre and audience, and I'm glad that you brought up poetry as perhaps being the least read genre. I think you're the second poet I have on my podcast. And I, I very much try to encourage my students and myself not to like fetishize poetry as something that I wouldn't understand because I myself don't write poetry, but it's just a different kind of way to think about how things are structured, how you structure words and your images. And I think now that I'm more careful as I'm trying to impart this kind of wisdom to my students, I think what you said here really applies. And I hope that my students and even people who have that same caution that they have with poetry could understand it as it's not so much about poetry, but it's just about how things are structured and arranged. Yeah, I mean, you're allowed to do anything with language. I mean, it's the one place where you can break Mm -hmm. it, you can recreate it, you can rearrange it, and there's no wrong answer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's the thing, there is no wrong answer in poetry. You know, the questions are interesting. Mm -hmm. And so I can't see that anybody would come to something and get it wrong. Yeah, yeah. You just can't. You know, what is it doing for you? What did it make you? Could just remind you of something. That can't be wrong. Right. You know, so that's what's important to me, I think. What you had just said is a good follow-up to my next question. What is science as a genre in your poetry? I think it's also notable that in your biography, you refer to yourself as an oral historian. And um, in traditional understandings of science and the culture divide, um, the conventional science is always documented for preservation and discovery. What are you playing with here about poems, poetic, science, and the oral tradition? How is your vision of science structured in the form of poetry? Well, when, I want to ask you about okay. what's this science and culture divide? Oh, okay. Um, so it's more common, I think, in modern research because during the Enlightenment era, I think people often forget that science and literature and culture, they were all part of each other. But now some people have clear definitions of science. And then the other things so like that would be the humanities and the literature. But um, when I was crafting the questions, 
I love that there's this kind of juxtaposition between your title of your collection and your themes. And then in your biography, you call yourself an oral historian. And usually people have thought about how science is more about what oral history isn't because oral is passed down. But in, in the sense of science, like they collect things, like they want documents, they like to prove right. things. So <laughs> I wonder if you were playing around with this kind of idea of your version of science and maybe what could be ways to talk about poetry and science. So what I found interesting in what you said is that originally literature, you'll have to correct me, but the humanities, science, all of these things were kind of more jumbled together mm-hmm. and not separate. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that makes sense to me because mm-hmm. the whole sense of genre and the question of things being in these different buckets yeah. doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Where does one thing start and the other end and where, why, and mm-hmm. who makes those decisions? Yeah. Today in, in writing, a lot of it is about marketing, right? Where is it going to go in the bookstore? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what mm-hmm. books will it be next to? That's how you sell things is by, you know, we're going to put this here and we're going to put that there. I think with the title kind of having this like physical and mm-hmm. this kind of spiritual, the question of oral history that you were talking about. Uh-huh. Um, in this book, I think we could safely say I'm in the realm of poetry. Mm-hmm. In a sense, I'm documenting because, and we'll probably talk about this later, just this was written a really long time ago. And so there's mm-hmm. a sense to me now that this is documentary work yeah. because it documents my imagination and subconscious from a couple decades ago. So there is a sense of having, you know, we have to record mm-hmm. this is kind of where I was. I definitely identify with the recording of and Mm -hmm. documenting a lot of other work that I do um, centers around oral history that I collected also a couple decades ago. And that is human speech, you know, mostly Mm -hmm. family members, friends of family. And so that stuff will appear in other works. I haven't used any of it in this work, but I still think you know, I bring that kind of into my bio because I think it says something about my inclination to document and to also equate that language with poetic language, mm-hmm. right? I don't necessarily see um, that there has to be a difference. Yeah. There, there's, a, there's a lot of poetry in speech, especially I feel that speech that I've documented mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of knowing these people and how they talk and that that's worth documenting. You said the vision of science structured in the form of poetry. And I think some of that is a a sense of being experimental, Mm -hmm. you know, observing, experimenting, questioning, Mm -hmm. you know, trying things. I mean, there has to be a sense of trying to figure something out, but you might figure out something else besides Mm -hmm. what you were trying to figure out. I think that's a scientific process that's Uh also an artistic process. You might be headed in one direction and end up having a realization about something else entirely. 
And then also in this book, you know, there's a lot of numerical language. Yeah. <laughs> when you ask these questions, I'm thinking, you know, there is a sense of communicating also numerically, which scientists mm-hmm. do. Yeah, I love that you said you're using experimental language and that you're experimenting because um, I'm reading a lot of books about how literature and, and science have always been, like I said, like they've always been connected, but somehow in recent paradigmatic shifts that we kind of separated them. But your poems just kind of reminded me of the things that the early experimenters who were scientists as we know them today had always kind of played with language. It was decorated for reasons like maybe they cared about literature as much as they cared about sciences. So that's part of the work that I try to do is to see why those kind of tensions are still there when when early on it was not so readily visible in that sense. Nothing was that fragmented and so um, put as opposites. Mm-hmm. It's kind of unnatural to yes, disconnect. Unnatural. <laughs> right. So I know you kind of touched on this earlier when we were talking about what is science to you and how you think about science in your poems. Um, a lot of your poems, too, deal with nature, the literal body. We were talking about your original title was Fever Dreams or Fever? Fever Poems. Poems, poems right. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think a lot of poems that kind of conjured up the image of motherhood, too. Yeah. And I, I especially felt that was represented when in your poems you were talking about cramps and body pains, but blood temperature and just the word eggs kept coming up. Um, in poem 82, there's a memory of a terrible boy who tells the narrator that she has two faces. And then there's also a terrible girl asking the narrator if she's pregnant. We, the reader, know that the narrator is not pregnant. And um, not having a child comes up often, too. In poem 11, you write, if I had a child now, I wish I didn't. Um, in another poem, poem 5, you're describing a very visceral type of pain And the last line is, there is no child. What are the connections you're trying to illustrate to the reader with all this kind of recurring themes throughout? Yeah, I mean, again, I don't think any of this was conscious. I've learned that there are at least two kinds of writers. So one Mm -hmm. sits down and goes, this is what I'm going to write about. Mm -hmm. This is what I'm going to try to evoke for the reader. And the other one kind of goes in, not knowing what they're doing and maybe Mm -hmm. figuring it out later, maybe not. And I'm the second type. So in this time frame, so again, the sense of a time capsule, the book being a time capsule, this is definitely the time of life of, you know, uh, thinking about reproduction, Mm -hmm. being really into, you know, talking about science, the menstrual cycle, you know, the cycle of life. Um, thinking about having a child, wanting to have a child, not really being the time to do that. So having a lot of kind of energy thinking about this, um, also teaching preschool. So, (laughs) you know, being with little kids, just a very physical time of life, you know, somebody sitting on your lap, crying, wiping their nose on your shoulder, (laughs) you know, prior to this, as I grew up, I was a student of ballet. In ballet, you're very physical. You're really doing damage to the body. Now there are plenty of movies of people in point shoes, you know, with bloody feet and all that stuff. So you're kind of 
transcending this harm that you're doing to yourself. It's not the point. The point is the art form. But there's kind of an overlooking of this. So there's kind of two things going on at once. You know, there's this delicate, beautiful uh, art form, Mm -hmm. but there's also this physical side of it that you have to inhabit, but also kind of damp down. So I think during this time of life, there was also a sense of of, um, reconnection to the body. Right. And feeling the things that maybe you didn't feel in the way that I was trained in that art form. I remember, in fact, probably during this time of life, I remember uh, having a pair of boots and, you know, new shoes. So you're wearing these boots and realizing that taking them off and going like, oh, wow, I have not only a blister on my heel, but it broke. And I didn't notice that, (laughs) you know, so. That kind of a thing. But then you're in an environment with children that just fell down and just started wailing. So there's, Mm -hmm. I think it was like a healing time and a a time of awareness of the body. Mm -hmm. And I just have always been really interested in the menstrual cycle. Mm -hmm. So all of these things, I think, jumble together Mm -hmm. (laughs) and in that time of life. Mm -hmm. Um, So I know I brought up uh, nature in the previous question, there are some poems that really struck me because I say you, but I mean the narrator. They're having conversations with nature. In poem 56, bugs are listening to a confessional. Um, in poem 45, you describe the shadows as having guns and shapes. The guns are filled with black holes and the sun is laughing and talking to you. Why is nature personified as an active participant speaking and interacting with the narrator? I think that I have a natural tendency to personify everything. (laughs) So there's that. Um, There's also in a preschool environment, there's a lot of personifying things. (laughs) So that only made it more, more apparent. And on another level, I think that we are in conversation with nature. Mm-hmm. Right. So in one way, it's fanciful and funny and, and, you know, childlike. On the other hand, we really are in conversation. And so it's not as silly or absurd to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we need to be in more conversation with nature. I also think about how to say this. So this will sound crazy. So it's talking about science. How do we know? what's sentient and what isn't, right? So we know that a tree isn't going to say hello to us. (laughs) You know, we know that. We know certain things we obviously know. But I always wonder, how would we know if there isn't a whole other type of communication occurring? Mm -hmm. So there's a sense of almost uh, human egocentric um, view that we have that Mm -hmm. we would know, we can detect. And I'm just philosophically never sure of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I always think, you know, if we, we look for life on other planets and would we see it if we, if it's like this in the face? Yeah. So on a sense, yes, obviously there are ways to detect that. And, mm-hmm. and I'm not discounting that. In another sense, I do think it would be possible that we can't detect some things that are there. I don't think we have every sense faculty that could exist. I think we, we don't know 
way more than we know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, in that sense, you know, personifying and communicating mm-hmm. seems like, I don't know, a fine thing to do. <laughs> yeah. So I, I like what you're saying here, like this idea of relationality that extends beyond just human relationships. I read your poems multiple times because I didn't want to miss anything. I think what you're saying about your work with children and how some parts of your imagination is captured in your poetry, I haven't really thought about children's literature in a very long time, but I think you're right that there's some sort of like maybe fearlessness in the imagination of children, like, you know? And Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, children's literature is a whole other wide, wild mm-hmm. world that's really worth it for any age. Mm-hmm. You talked a lot about, you mentioned rather, this idea of capturing numericalness in your poems. Mm-hmm. And um, when I look through your table of contents in the actual pages, there are no titles, it's just numbers and parentheses. But the table of contents that you provided, they're, they're just the first couple of words from the first line of poetry. Um, do you count those as titles? or? Yeah, okay. yeah, I would count those as the titles. Why in the actual pages did you just leave the titles out and just put them as numbers? Um, and I also want to ask, how did you end up ordering your your poetry, your poems, because they're not numerically in order, except that I did see that poem 23 followed immediately after poem 22, and both poems are about um, this idea of imagining motherhood or being a mother. Why are things not chronological? And then why did you let those two be in immediate conversation with each other? I will talk about the process. Okay. I, I don't know why I did it, but here's what I do know. In ordering the poems... I had numbered them, Mm -hmm. and then somehow I thought that this would help me keep track of, you know, one original order if I wanted to go back to it. I really don't exactly remember, but I was ordering them, and then realized um, through conversation with another um, artist that I wanted to retain these numbers on there. Mm -hmm. In again, not sitting down to consciously do this, but now in retrospect, I think that that it worked. There's one thing, what you do in creation, and then there's the editing process and what you keep and what you decide that you're going to deliberately leave in the manuscript. So putting the numbers there was part of the creation process. But then later, as I was looking at it, I said, this actually speaks to what I'm talking about. It's another layer. It's a numerical way of talking about Mm -hmm. the same thing. Remember being a child, and maybe you've taken some of these tests too, where they're, I don't know if it's an intelligence test or a math test. I don't know what it is, but they might have two, two, three, two, two, three, two, two, blank. And you're Mm -hmm. supposed to put what would go in the blank. Mm-hmm. So it's a pattern recognition kind oh, of okay. test. Yes, I remember. Yeah, and I don't know what they're trying to determine, whether you can predict correctly what right. the pattern would be. Mm-hmm. And I remember being so enraged by this because 
I could tell you what the pattern is, Mm -hmm. but I knew there was no way to know if the pattern was about to change. We didn't have enough information. Now, I didn't know about the number pi. (laughs) I didn't know about, um, you know, uh, that much about numbers and patterns and, and all of that. But I did know that just because 223 has happened over and over that 223 would happen again. Mm-hmm. And there was no way to have that conversation because it was a test. And I remember sitting there and then you kind of shrink into the box and go, I think they just want me to put a three there. Yeah. So let me just do that because I think that's what they're trying to get at. Yeah. But it felt kind of arrogant to assume that you know what's coming, mm-hmm. right? So I think that larger question can be addressed with these numbers. In fact, I had um, one reader of the poems kind of criticizing that because it's like, well, let's get rid of these irrelevant numbers, these random numbers. Mm -hmm. So you have that one part where it's 22, 23. So Mm -hmm. things are in order, things aren't in order. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about predictability. We're talking about randomness. Mm -hmm. How do we know it's, is it, are they random? Will they repeat? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I think it called back to that. And mm-hmm. again, I think it's a creation question. Mm-hmm. Is there order in this? Right. You know, is it predictable? Mm-hmm. Simultaneously, I, again, retrospectively realized that, you know, I talked about really being interested in the menstrual cycle. Well, I would chart my temperatures. So mm-hmm. there's, I think it's called basal body temperature charting that you can do where you take your temperature at the same time each morning. So this was me doing science of the body, not realizing it. Mm-hmm. Um, you take your temperature each morning and chart it. And the temperatures are lower in the first part of the cycle. And then progesterone bumps them up after ovulation. And then in fact, if there's a pregnancy, most of the time it goes up another phase. It's like a triphasic chart that you'll end up with. Um, and so that was something that I was just interested in doing. And that was during this time. So <laughs> it makes me think about, you know, all of these waking up in the morning with all of these numbers mm-hmm. up, down, what's it going to do tomorrow, having a sense of, you get to know your body, but then something else happens. Why did it go down? Why is it up today? So I think there was just a whole bunch of numerical questions right. going through my head at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, it kind of felt like that each number kind of was like a little gene in the DNA of the book. Oh. Mm-hmm. So, so the process of making it, I don't think you should always keep every part of the process in your final project, but sometimes it makes sense. And this time it felt like there's so much about creation and reproduction. And so those little pieces of evidence should stay. So I kept them. So I know you've alluded to this a lot about this kind of sense of time when you're um, writing and when you're editing and then you're working on your manuscript. I know your collection, the Hallelujah Science is published quite recently in 2020. Um, And at the end of the acknowledgements, you shared that 96% of your poems were written between 1995 through 1997. 
And then it was in 2009, you attended a poetry workshop and began working on this, this manuscript. So I want to ask you about your revision process because it's a major time span, you know, from when you began writing freely and then the workshopping and then the eventual manuscript. What changed and did the ideas change? I know the title of the poetry collection changed. Um, so what were the biggest changes, do you think, for the narrative arc of the story or even your approach to revision? Yeah, um, well, I think the biggest change was probably me. <laughs> the work didn't change that much. So this was something I did and put away for a long time. And periodically, I'll go on clutter clearing, you know, binges where I'm going to get rid of everything. And I would find this box of stuff and read it and go, wow, this, you know, it almost feels like the notebooks had parts that would heat up. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, there's something warmer there. It's getting hot, you know. So over time, I would take out those parts that heated up, <laughs> you know. And over time, I mean, I think typically old work is mortifying and it's cringeworthy. And you think, yes. oh, my goodness, let me get rid of this. <laughs> it's horrible. But for some reason, this stuff, I just thought, I don't know if I can do any better than this. This is, mm -hmm. this is, I really like this. I still feel like there's some energy here. It, it felt alive. And so I never really wanted to, you know, mess with that alchemy mm -hmm. <laughs> too much. I thought, um, you know, in later from 2009 on studying poetry, I really had a sense of, you know, I think I can do more damage to this. I need to write new work that's informed by what I'm learning, but this is just mm -hmm. something else. This is kind of prehistoric <laughs> for me and it needed to stay that way. I did in the process of, you know, once I found a publisher for it, mm -hmm. um, I looked at it more externally and said, okay, I really need to figure out what is the internal kind of rule book to this in terms of, capitalization, punctuation, when am I disrupting that? And when am I kind of going with a pattern? Should there be, I didn't think that everything should be the same way because the mm -hmm. book just isn't like that. But I had to look at it because now it's intentional, right? It mm -hmm. went from this subconscious kind of experiment to like, now you're putting out this book. So, you know, decisions have to be made and now it should be deliberate because mm -hmm. this is your authorship that you're actually doing it. So now stepping back in time, one of the changes that actually came back out was kind of adding a postscript at the request of someone who read it, who thought, you know, I talked about like, why do you have these numbers and what is this? And maybe we should get rid of that. I kind of had this um, request to kind of explain that and kind of give a take on why that was. So I would send it out um, on submission, sometimes with that. And then I'd go, I don't like, I don't <laughs> explaining poetry, yeah. right? Uh -huh. I don't, but maybe that's why no one's picking this up or just kind mm -hmm. of going back and forth. And in the end, I mean, I just, I, I did it in a way that was still kind of interesting, I think. It didn't just explain it, but in the end, I just took it back out. So mm -hmm. it's kind of like you, 
I learned that, you know, in the process of submitting, you're supposed to keep changing it and keep improving it. But in this case, all the improvements just would come right now because it wasn't, it, it was only hurting it in the uh-huh. end. This kind of goes to your question too. Um, when I brought the poems to that initial workshop, Willie Perdomo had said that poem 35 that is does have the title in it. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, I think that's the voice of the speaker. And, you know, if you're trying to figure out what to keep and what to let go, which poems go in and which poems go out, maybe see if they're in that voice, that might be your book. And so I think I kind of kept that in the back of my head that 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 kind of was the scalpel (laughs) that I could use Mm -hmm. to um, find out what belonged in, Mm -hmm. in the book. And that ended up pretty much working for me. And. And I, maybe this is a good way to end the conversation. So poem 35, instead of starting with poem 35, it becomes the fourth poem. So if we're talking about order and using this piece, poem 35 is a piece that anchors, why did you put it as your fourth poem? I think it just felt like that's where it fit. Mm-hmm. I don't think that it's not a real linear book. And mm-hmm. so, again, like starting in the beginning, maybe yeah. wouldn't make sense. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's very <laughs> I, I don't think right. that I consciously did uh-huh. that. Mm-hmm. But now looking back, it's not linear. So it's more circular. So right. it could begin in a lot of places. <laughs> Are you working on any new projects? Yeah, during the this pandemic time, I've gotten back into that oral history work. And so... I think the next couple projects that hopefully get published will use that um, material. Okay. And I won't reveal too much more. This book I talked about for 10 years before it ever came out. So now I'm going to just zip it. Okay. Well, then (laughs) I guess when your new work comes out, come back on the podcast and we can talk about your new work too. Oh, I love that. This was just a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at AnnAnnaDroid. I'd also like to thank Mariah Behrens for creating the cover art for my podcast and my partner, Matthew Sample, for his music and edits. See you next time.